Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The highly traditional pair of guests today, traditional describing the population count, not the guests themselves. Sarah Goldrick-Raub will talk about hunger among college students, and David Broder will talk about the reputation-buffing Italy's far-right Prime Minister Georgia Maloney has enjoyed on the occasion of her visit with Joe Biden last week. We've long heard a lot about student debt, now at $1.8 trillion, according to the Federal Reserve, which is half a trillion more than all the credit card debt outstanding. What's gotten less attention are the economic challenges that students face while in college, notably getting enough to eat and keeping a roof over their heads. My next guest has been studying this topic for about 20 years. Sarah Goldrick-Raub is a sociologist and an independent consultant based in Philadelphia. She's the founder of the Hope Center for Community Injustice. The numbers she comes up with are disturbing. For example, one in four undergraduates and one in eight graduate students face food insecurity. That's worth considering at a time when a study by Opportunity Insights that focused on entry to very elite colleges has attracted so much media attention. Going to Yale is a very pleasant luxury, I speak from experience, but staying housed and fed is far more important. Sarah goldrick Rob. Before we get to your work, uh, we've been hearing a lot about access to elite institutions because of that Opportunity Insights paper. Any thoughts on that in light of your work before we get to uh, your work specifically? American higher education and the discourse around it is is incredibly centered on this idea that there are a few colleges that everyone needs to go to and that it's really hard to get access to them and including to afford them. That's the wrong message because the fact is that we have over 4,000 colleges and universities, most of which are very worth attending. And the vast majority of them do not require you to do cartwheels and cheat and get really high test scores and all of these other things in order to get in. I know that the discussion of affirmative action is important. It certainly is. But it is an issue affecting a much, much smaller fraction of people compared to issues like really being able to afford to participate in college, learn, and not have to go hungry doing it. It seems like this sort of thing is pitched towards a pretty upper middle class audience, isn't it? It is. It's pitched towards people who, frankly, already hold the vast majority of the wealth and power in this country and who, in turn, dominate the talk. They also, unfortunately, though, sort of set the standards. So when we think about what a good parent is now, a good parent in this country is is thought to be somebody who puts aside a whole bunch of money every year so that they're saving for college and is willing to stretch in incredible ways in order to pay for college for their child and is willing to have their child do all of these things to try to get into, again, a handful of colleges, maybe 12 colleges, which educate less than 1% of all students. We have an awful lot of really fine public institutions, although they're getting to be priced more and more like private ones lately, but uh, they need some nurturance and attention. That's exactly right. And look, one of the reasons that our public institutions are becoming so expensive is because the public isn't paying enough attention to them. They used to be less expensive when people voted um, and states actually put money in to make their public colleges affordable. Now, folks are concerned with other issues, and higher education is towards the bottom of the list of things that people are prioritizing when they look at candidates. And lo and behold, the legislators have found it very easy to say, when we need to cut the budget to fund something else, we're going to pass the buck on to your family. And also people blame the colleges, which makes it an incredibly difficult situation. So they they hate on the colleges for the high prices rather than hating on the public legislators and voting for somebody else. Okay, now let's turn to your work, housing and and food challenges for uh, college students. Um, Where did you get your data? This sort of thing just doesn't grow on trees. Uh, How did you find this? These data certainly don't grow on trees. And I'll tell you uh, just a quick story. Back in 2008, I was doing a study Um, where I was looking at how students who didn't come from money were navigating college. And one of those students, um, I asked a question, you know, how are things going? And she said, I'm not okay. I haven't eaten in several days. And I went to go look and see whether, in fact, this was an anomaly or whether there was data on this. And there were virtually no data on this. And over the next 10 years, I kept looking 
and I kept finding there's nothing. And so starting in about 2015, I began a systematic survey where I recruited colleges and eventually states and said, can we ask these questions of these students? Because the federal government wasn't doing it. And we did it over and over and other researchers started doing it. And we started demanding that the federal government ask these questions. And so in the spring of 2020, for the very first time ever, the federal government asked these questions. And that matters because it's a nationally representative survey with a giant budget to get high response rates. So we have better scientific data than we've ever had. And it just came out last week. The spring of 2020, though, that's when COVID hit, right? (laughs) Didn't that distort the data? Unfortunate, right? I mean, I can show you that I've made those requests year after year. And we had no idea, of course, that the first time that this would come out would be, and indeed, the, the, the survey started going out in March 2020. I mean, literally as pandemic hit. Yeah, so we're not going to get uh, you know, representative data, I presume. Or represent- it was representative of a very unusual time. Representative of an unusual time. But I will tell you, because I had been collecting data for many years, that I collected it from the same kinds of institutions that had been willing for years. And we didn't actually see major jumps or changes in the numbers. And part of the reason is because the students who were at the most risk of these challenges left college. So we couldn't even survey them. And the other thing is a whole bunch of additional resources poured in because of the pandemic. And so some people got more help than they would normally do. Oddly enough, those things seem to balance each other out. And so the 2018 and 2019 and 2020 numbers that I had been collecting didn't show major fluctuations. Of course, it's possible, though, that the pandemic is totally adjusting these numbers and that we will hope that the next time they do the survey, that we will start to see these numbers go down. So this is going to be a recurring survey. It will be a recurring survey, yes. As long as the federal government continues to think that policymakers need these data, these data will be collected. The biggest hurdle is in getting the data collected the very first time. Define food insecurity. Food insecurity for college students is being defined the same exact way that it is for any other adult. The vast majority of college students indeed are adults, and they don't experience their need for food in any kind of different way. So it's about your ability to afford regular access to food so that you can eat on a daily basis. And so there are degrees of insecurity. There are, right? So as you can imagine, there are people for whom they're never worried about whether or not they're going to be able to afford to eat. Then there are people who worry, but they do still make ends meet and they can do it. Neither of those groups of people are being counted here as food insecure. People who are food insecure are doing things like cutting the size of their meals or skipping meals because they can't afford to eat enough. They're not eating what one might call healthy meals, although that's really not the emphasis here. This is really about your just ability to eat every day. And in some of the most severe circumstances, we are seeing people who are going a day or more without eating. And in some cases, that leads you to lose weight. And by the way, though, in some cases, you don't lose weight. You actually gain weight because the food that you are eating is really cheap and bad for you. So we don't like to call this purely hunger, partly because For people who go through this a lot, they don't even necessarily always feel the hunger anymore. They've gotten so used to it, but it is adversely affecting their health. And it's also affecting how they're doing in school. Okay, so what's the summary of your findings? How many students are suffering from uh, insecurity? So what we find um, from the national numbers is that uh, 23%, so almost one in four undergraduates in this country, and 12% of graduate students have been experiencing food insecurity, at least at the time of that survey. And just to put that in terms of how many people that is, that is approximately around 4.5 million students across this country. I was somewhat surprised by this. I thought that college students come generally from a more affluent portion of the population. So these are very large numbers, contrary to my expectations. Yeah, they're not larger than what I had been finding for years. They're actually a little bit lower. So here's the thing. When you say you tend to think of college students as affluent, you probably also tend to think about college students as the kind of people who live on university campuses in dormitories, and most people don't. What does that population look like? The vast majority of college students now lives off campus, sometimes with parents, but oftentimes in their own place. They go to both community colleges and regional public state colleges or universities, right? So not the big flagships. About 75% of them are in places like that, places that accept most or all people who try to register or apply. And they live lives 
like other adults in this country, meaning, yes, they are in classes, but they are also working. Um, More than one in five of them is raising a child of their own. And they are really struggling on a daily basis to make ends meet. It's not like financial aid, which, you know, again, the story we tell ourselves is incredibly generous and makes up for any gaps. Financial aid's not getting that job done. And the one other thing is that the story we tell ourselves is that when colleges tell us what their price is, we should believe them and that's the price that we're going to pay. In fact, the prices, the real prices are a lot higher and it's those surprises that are contributing to this problem as well. Such as? So for example, um, if you live in a campus, off-campus apartment, so you don't live in a dormitory, your college is going to estimate for you what your rent is going to be. But the truth is, how does your college know what the landlords are charging in the area and how do they know what your living situation is going to be? So maybe they decide that you're going to have four roommates, but you're a mom with a child. You're not going to be living with a bunch of roommates. It's not going to be possible. So your rent could well be higher than the average. Um, In other cases, they might be estimating what they think you're doing in terms of transportation. Uh, Maybe they think you're taking the bus, but you have a disability and you're not able to take the bus. And so you're driving a car. Your costs are higher than the average. Uh, With colleagues, I've estimated how far off colleges and universities are. And the fact of the matter is they're off by approximately 20%. So if you think college costs are high, college costs are perhaps even 20% more than you might think that they are. I'm speaking with the education consultant and scholar, Sarah Goldrick-Robb. Okay, what about demographic variations among the uh, the food insecure? Food insecure students, the first thing is that they come from all different types of backgrounds. So it's not like we only see food insecure students from families that are very, very low income. In fact, we see food insecurity affecting students who are from well below the poverty line, and we see it among students who are well above the poverty line. So for example, 31% of students living below the poverty line deal with food insecurity, and so do 13% of students who are 300% or more above the poverty line. Another thing that we see is that uh, working doesn't seem to protect you. So students who are unemployed have uh, a rate of food insecurity that's about one in four. But students who are working 20 to almost full-time jobs have a very similar food insecurity rate, actually a little bit higher. We see this among people with children. We see this regardless of age. We see this across gender. We see this across race. No one seems to really be protected from it, though some people are at exceptionally high risk. So, for example, people who are what we would call non-Hispanic white, who may not deal with as much discrimination in this society, 18% of those students are dealing with food insecurity the rate is nearly double for Black or African-American students at 35%. Nonetheless, I wouldn't call 18% small. No, that's almost one in five. That's a big number. Now, what about the Pell versus the non-Pell? Pell is usually used as a proxy for uh, poverty, right? Exactly. So it's 31% of Pell recipients and it's 17% of non-Pell recipients. This is what concerns me, right? Is that we say things like, well, you need financial help for college if you're a Pell recipient, and certainly you do. But it seems that you also need help even if you're not getting Pell. Another staggering thing that I, you know, I have to say I wasn't surprised by because of my work, but I think the average person would be surprised by, is that they report the, the price students are paying after all grants and scholarships. And when you compute that as a percent of their income, students who have a zero price point, they have zero dollars, they're not owing anything according to official numbers, 21% of them are food insecure. What that tells you is the official numbers are wrong. We're overestimating what students can pay and we're underestimating their real costs. There's a lot more to the cost of living than just paying the tuition. That's exactly right. And here though, just to be clear, the cost of attending college, according to the federal government and in these calculations, is food and housing and transportation and childcare and clothing and healthcare, all of that. So what we're saying here is that the college is telling the student you have a price and you have enough financial aid or family resources to meet that price, you should be all set. And I'm telling you, both sets of those data are wrong. And so one in five of these students is still hungry. And now what about housing and homelessness? The federal government made the decision to collect information about homelessness, but not about what we call housing insecurity, which in my data is as prevalent as food insecurity. 
Housing insecurity is you're not homeless yet, but you really could be soon. So for example, you're not paying your rent on time, you're not able to pay your utilities. What the federal government decided to collect, though, around homelessness captures both sheltered and unsheltered homelessness. And that means that in addition to people sleeping in their cars or on the street or sometimes in a shelter, what we're mostly seeing here are people who are couch surfing. And couch surfing is not something you do for fun. It's not about staying with friends per se. It's about, you know, on a daily basis or on a weekly basis, trying to find somebody who will let you stay on the couch at the very least. And we find that 8% of undergraduate students and 5% of graduate students had experienced homelessness in the 30 days prior to this survey. Together, that adds up to about 1.5 million students. And that's just in the 30 days prior to the survey. If you looked at over the course of a year or four years, uh, I'm sure the numbers would be much higher. They are. And when I've collected these data, I have tended to collect both 30 days prior and a year prior. And yes, the year prior numbers... I would add about a third onto these probably. So we're looking at something, you know, more like 10, 11%. How many people drop out of college purely for economic reasons? The fact of the matter is that while college students tell us that that happens all the time, and we do have reason to believe them, we don't really have a way to know that because the reasons that students drop out are complicated. So for example... Students will see students drop out because they're not doing well in their classes. But the reason they're not doing well in their classes is that they're struggling to pay their rent. And so they've picked up extra hours at work and now they don't have time to study. Do we say that that's because a student had bad grades they dropped out or do we say that it was too expensive? My studies, which have been going on for about 20 years, pretty consistently show that we have students leaving college even with A's and B's because the price is too high. And I would suggest that Some of them are leaving, not dealing with food insecurity or housing insecurity. It hasn't gotten that bad, but under significant stress. We have a a dropout rate in this country of around 50%. We have 50% of people don't make it through. And I'm willing to say, you know, after all my years of doing this, that probably at least two thirds to three quarters of that is because of a lack of affordability. How do we solve these problems? Is it a function of the larger uh, problem of poverty and uh, hunger and homelessness in the U.S.? Or is there something that could be specifically targeted towards college students? Is it a special problem of college students that needs a specific solution? So certainly poverty is, is a factor here, but these rates of food and housing insecurity are actually higher than they are for the general population. So there are things that are specifically happening to college students. One of those things, like I've been saying, is bad prices and bad information. But another really important problem is that this, what we call the safety net, the, the policies that are supposed to help you when you're dealing with poverty and help you escape, are often exclusionary of college students. So they actually misunderstand college students. They think that if you are dealing with poverty, it must be a choice and it must be a fault of your own. And so we're not going to help you. So literally things like the program that we used to call food stamps that we now call SNAP is much, much harder to get access to if you're a college student. Same thing goes for low-income housing. It is much, much harder to get into low-income housing if you dare to enroll in college than if you don't and you just work a minimum wage job. And that's backwards because it's actually very efficient to help people who are in college. If they graduate, they're going to not need these supports going forward. I noticed the the appalling Ron DeSantis said the other day that why should a truck driver, he's talking about student debt relief, um, why should a truck driver pay for somebody who got a degree in gender studies? I'm sure you hear that kind of caricature a lot, but what would your response to that be? Uh, Truck drivers today have a lot of student debt because truck driver training costs money. (laughs) And truck driver training happens at the nation's community colleges and for-profit colleges, by the way, which charge them even more. So I don't know the last time that Ron DeSantis actually went to a college, particularly, you know, one of the many community colleges across Florida and actually looked at what they do. But there are far more people pursuing vocational programs like HVAC and truck driver training than there are in what he's calling gender studies. A departure uh, for a final question. There's been a lot of talk lately that college just isn't worth it. It's not economically justified. You end up on a whole lot of debt uh, and then all these challenges. But is college worth it in general? People who go to college live longer, live healthier lives, and are much more economically stable than the people who are not. People who are in those situations send their kids to college. So I think that they're telling us it's worth it. The problem is that we have allowed the price to rise so high that now we start to say, 
it's not affordable, therefore it's not worth it. But that's a choice. It's not a fact. These prices are not a fact. They are a choice. We can make a different choice and make the price of college low enough that it reduces the risk of doing something that we all think is important to do. You know, we used to have these conversations about whether it would be worth it to make high school free. And it's hard to imagine now what would happen in this country if people only went through elementary and middle school and didn't go to high school. It's worth giving people the chance to live longer, healthier lives through learning. And I don't say that as a professor. I say that as a human being. And I say that as a scientist. And I say that as a mom. That's Sarah Goldrick-Robb, a sociologist and an independent consultant based in Philadelphia and founder of the Hope Center for Community Injustice. Her website is her name, Sarah with no H, GoldrickRob without a hyphen, dot com. By the way, for comparison, the Census Bureau's Household Pulse Surveys, which the Bureau started in May 2020 to measure people's material well-being in the COVID era, reports that in July, 12% of adults, 1 in 8, or about half as many as college students, reported being either sometimes or always unable to get all the food they want. In 2021, thanks to heaps of government income support, that got down to 8 to 9%, but with the expiration of that support and the rise in inflation, the share has risen. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Power. Let's talk about power. Power in the home, power on the phone, power at the office. Power at the table, power in the stable, power at the corner store, power with the man next door, power on the bus, power on the street, power in the bedroom. Let's talk about power. It's everywhere. We're always talking about power. Even when we're not talking about power, we're talking about power. Everybody wants it. Beauty is power. You can't take the power out of beauty. And you can't take the beauty out of power. It's at the base. Power fills the space between you and me. That was some of Power from the first Miasma album, a 1993 collaboration between Gudrun Gut, formerly of Einstürzen de Neubauten and Malaria, and Myra Davis, an art historian turned spoken word artist who's been working with Gut for decades. I'm not always a fan of this sort of thing, but Davies' words are first-rate, as is Gut's electronic background. Next, Italy. Italian Prime Minister Giorgio Maloney, who belongs to a party that's a literal descendant of Benito Mussolini's fascist party, has undergone quite the image makeover in the U.S. media. In an article key to her visit with Biden last week, the New York Times quoted Valbona Zanelli of the Atlantic Council, which is essentially NATO's think tank, saying of her, Prime Minister Maloney's actions have clearly demonstrated a values-based commitment to the transatlantic relationship. Italy is a strong partner for the U.S. on many issues, from its support for Ukraine and its active role in holding Russia accountable to its pragmatic defense industry cooperation. So clearly, values-based commitment to the transatlantic relationship means supporting war and the weapons industry. While that may be an accurate description of the values of the American political class, they're not my values, and I'm guessing those of most listeners. Has Maloney softened in office? Has she done anything to deserve the warm welcome from Biden and what my late friend Bob Fitch used to call the capitalist hyena press? The short answer is, unsurprisingly, no. But to flesh it out, I thought I'd check in with David Broder. David, the European editor of Jacobin, writes extensively about Italy. He was on Behind the News in March to talk about his book Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy, published by Pluto. It details the genealogical chart that leads fairly directly from Benito himself to Maloney and her party. When David Broder talks about today as the anniversary of the Bologna train station bombing, he meant Wednesday, August 2nd, when we recorded this interview. Here's David Broder. Georgia Maloney has undergone quite the evolution from fascist threat to good transatlantic ally. What's been happening here? I think when we speak about the mainstreaming of the far right, uh, that's often discussed as a process coming from one side often, particularly I'm British, uh, the British press often talk about these far-right movements in Europe. Oh, are they going to split up the European Union? Are they going to quit? Are they going to stop supporting Ukraine? Then it turns out that, particularly in terms of their attitude towards the European Union, uh, NATO, they're more interested in changing them from within than quitting. So 
there's this idea that they've gone moderate, they've gone soft. Um, but I think that the, the process of mainstreaming is, is more complicated uh, in the sense that there's another side to it, which is liberals, centrists, the centre-right, embracing these far-right figures uh, and treating them as normal, as sort of acceptable. Um, so even though Meloni's party and government and ministers continue to talk about things like great replacement theory, to have a conspiracist and ethnic view of politics and their action, as long as they're willing to go along with the main Euro-Atlantic institutions, then no great problem. Uh, the Italian uh, translation of my article for La Repubblica uh, had a title uh, not authorized by me, uh, which said, uh, well, America shouldn't be legitimizing the Italian far right. But of course, it's wholly unsurprising that Biden would act in this way and follows uh, in the way that governments of uh, administrations of, of both parties uh, have habitually treated uh, even undemocratic right-wing governments, uh, so long as they were willing to toe the line. So Milani isn't seen as a threat either to American leadership in Europe or more specifically towards European support for Ukraine. Yeah, that seemed to be very uh, key to it. A lot of concern about Ukraine. Um, Maloney has been a very enthusiastic supporter of uh, the NATO and US positions. And uh, it seems like everything else recedes into the background as long as she's sound in that particular issue. Yes, I think it's also very unsurprising. The MSI, the, the neo-fascist post-war party uh, set up on the ruins of fascism, uh, very quickly swung behind support for NATO, notwithstanding the, the American uh, invasion of Italy in 1943. And it's also important to remember that this party, Fratelli d'Italia and its allies, they've been in governments before. You know, they, they were in government when Berlusconi supported the war in Iraq. The defense minister uh, during the, the war in Libya in 2011 is currently a, a member of Fratelli d'Italia as president of the Senate. So these people have actually kind of shown their, their, their political stripes quite uh, often. There is nonetheless a kind of rewarding of Meloni and the fact that the state visit happened uh, and that Biden sort of treated her in a friendly way. Uh, because I think there is an awareness that Italy actually is kind of one of the weak links in the Western support for Ukraine in the sense that public opinion in Italy is probably among the least supportive of Ukraine, uh, in the right-wing parties in particular, in fact. There's obviously strong business links between Italy and Russia. There's a strong Catholic peace movement, as well as ones of left and parts of the far right. So you know, Milani is, in a sense, keeping up Italy's support, despite what her own base think. There's two caveats I put on that. One is that Italy actually isn't a very important supporter of Ukraine in military terms or in terms of humanitarian aid. If we think that uh, countries like Germany or Britain have given in you know, total uh, dollar value probably six, seven times more than Italy, which stands much more alongside countries of the type of Czech Republic, Norway, this kind of thing. So Italy actually isn't a very important military player. Uh, but of course, it would be a problem for the Western Alliance and its united front if Italy uh, desisted from supporting Ukraine. Then the other caveat I put on it is probably compared to election time, the economic fallout of the war has been much less bad than expected. Um, so the kind of contradictions haven't uh, come to a head in quite the way they might have. Oh, it's funny because it seems like liberals uh, in recent years have had little in the way of their own positive politics other than being the not fascists, the not far right. Certainly that's driven a lot of uh, the Democratic Party's reaction to Donald Trump, where we don't have much to offer on our own, but we're not Trump. And it does seem, though, that they can fold very quickly when um, the fascist actually takes power. Yeah, I mean, I think we're in a very different political moment to the one in which Donald Trump first won the, the 2016 election, you know, of course, also the time of Brexit, in a way compared to when the Lega uh, entered government in 2018, that was kind of more in that moment of Brexit and Trump. And I think there was actually more alarmism by liberals. But also at that point, the connection between anti-fascism and the kind of anti-Russia positions, uh, liberals were very strongly linking those two things. And I think they've been strongly uh, separated out. 
So, of course, we also see governments of countries like notably Poland, uh, which has taken a very strong pro-Ukraine stance, has also been sort of brought back into the fold of kind of centrist uh, European politics. Uh, of course, it should be said that the fault for letting them off the hook lies squarely with Vladimir Putin and the Russian invasion, uh, which has badly undermined the term and the identity based around uh, anti-fascism, precisely because at times uh, his government has itself tried to, to draw on that uh, in, a, in a very uh, false and, uh, and indeed contradictory way, given the strong presence of the far right within the authorities in Russia. Now, you were on the uh, here a few months ago to talk about the pedigree of uh, Maloney and her party. So could you remind the listeners of the lines of dissent uh, from Mussolini to the Brothers of Italy? My book calls them Mussolini's grandchildren. So the point is that they're not clones of Mussolini or just 1945 returning in the present. Uh, you have these films, like there's one about uh, uh, Hitler called Look Who's Back, and there's one about uh, Mussolini in Italy uh, called I've Returned. Uh, in each case, the, the dictator of the 1940s returns to the present and finds himself still popular uh, because people like what he has to say. So I think that kind of image is wrong. Instead, what it is, is they're political descendants. They're people who continue in the same political tradition, but in very different times. Meloni's party, Fratelli d'Italia, is the heir to the Movimento Sociale Italiano, MSI, uh, a party that was set up in 1946 by former officials of the fascist regime. It was such a diehard party that uh, at first it refused to admit to membership uh, people who hadn't supported the Mussolini regime right to the end in 1945, the most diehard Nazi collaborators, the main historic leader of the party in post-war decades, Giorgio Almirante, who Maloney has often called her political hero. He continued to call himself a fascist even in the 1980s. We can still observe some important differences, of course. Even that post-war party was a mainly electoral party, certainly with some violent subculture uh, and actors within it. But Melani became active politically as a teenager in 1992. So the end of the Cold War, uh, Italy entering a more integrated European Union, and also decisively a decline in social violence and political conflict in Italy itself. So that at the time, even in the 90s, I talk about in the book, this long fascist party very much integrated the kind of gospel of the post-ideological world into its fascist idea of the homogenous national community. I'd say they're kind of fusing different uh, uh, traditions in that sense. Some very important historians of fascism, like uh, Roger Griffin, called this a kind of constitutional fascism, which merged some liberal ideas of democracy, even human rights, with a traditionally fascist ethnic conception of the nation. The project of Fratelli d'Italia is to create something more like the US Republican Party in Italy. That's what Berlusconi tried to do. That's what some of the 1990s post-fascist leaders said they wanted to do, you know, create this broad right-wing container, a normal conservative party that Italy didn't have before because it had you know, Christian Democrats rather than conservatives. But I think it's interesting that in this attempt to make a more so-called normal right-wing party, they're also benefiting from a certain radicalization of the old centre-right parties in other countries. If we think of the Republicans themselves, the British Tories, the fact that parties like the Spanish Partido Popular wanted to go into government with a, with a neo-Francoite party, Finland, Sweden, again, we have these far-right parties now included in the uh, government majority. We're seeing a kind of fusion of old conservative and sort of ex-fascist parties, but in new times, less utopianism, less idea of transformative change, still less violence, but nonetheless a kind of ethnic uh, identity politics centred on the idea of civilizational decline and uh, threat from the outside world. Uh, so I think that that's becoming more mainstream, but it retains ties to the fascist past. Uh, if I can just add one more thing, I'm aware my answer very long. We're having this interview today on the anniversary of the Bologna train station bombing uh, in 1980, uh, in which 85 people were killed. So we know that that was a neo-fascist terrorist attack. Uh, you know, the final judicial convictions came in, people served time in jail. But Melani as prime minister refuses to say it was a neo-fascist terrorist attack. She didn't attend the ceremonies today about it. 
and she issued a statement which generally condemned terrorism, but also uh, suggested that the historical truth was yet to be revealed. So even though the party has become very mainstream and she is welcomed in Washington and so on, uh, they still haven't really cut ties with their past and with the uh, uh, associates, the neo-fascist associates of their own political heroes. What about the relationship between her and the party? Does she get to act all high-minded while the the rank and file sound off? Um, is that some kind of division of responsibility? Yeah, so I, I think that the basically what they are doing is separating out her persona as a kind of international representative of Italy, stateswoman, someone who adopts a more kind of institutional profile, even a more kind of personalized one rather than as a party identity. And on the other hand, ministers or people with leadership roles in the party who say kind of outrageous and provocative things to rile up the base. Um, I think indicative in this regard is the use of the phrase ethnic substitution. So since becoming prime minister, she's not explicitly referred to great replacement theory. But for example, her agriculture minister, who is also her brother-in-law, has said it. The other day, her, her partner, who's the father of her child, they're not married. He's not in the party, but he kind of said on in the TV, he's a journalist, he said, well, if uh, the Germans are coming over here and saying it's too hot because of climate change, well, why don't they go home? So there's some possibility that the government will disappoint some of the base who might have hoped that it would mount more confrontations with the European Union or in government, even Milani would be saying the same thing she was uh, before. But I think they are are actually delivering for their base uh, in important ways, uh, including economically, because really <laughs> the Fratelli d'Italia is a party of uh, low tax and uh, leniency on tax evasion. I'm speaking with David Broder, author of Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy, published by Pluto. It's very much a small business party, right? Yeah, so as it's grown, its uh, class base, if you will, has become more transversal. Before the election, there was some kind of liberal criticism like, oh, it's this like statist party that wants to nationalize stuff and so on. But what we really see is, is a party that uh, strips welfare benefits, that doesn't want to consider a minimum wage, that promotes as the means of uh, job creation, just tax cuts. Italy uh, also, you know, as, as the, the one European government that doesn't look like it's going to spend the money it's been allocated under the next generation EU project. So you know, it's not a party of investment or building up big business as such. It's a party that helps out small business with tax cuts. Overall, we can say that Italy over the last three decades has suffered from worsening investment and productivity uh, and can only compete by reducing labor costs. Then Fratelli d'Italia's perspective completely takes that reality for granted and doesn't propose to change it. There's an awful lot of orthodox criticism of Italy, which is actually rooted in fact that it's uh, just not kept up uh, technologically uh, in terms of its capital investment or R&D or anything like that. And they're not addressing that. They just don't care. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's not in their, the interest of, of their base. And they've even cancelled some of the eco-transition type uh, projects that have, had already been in the works. And, and, you know, I think it's actually quite comparable to uh, countries like uh, Hungary and Poland, which they admire, which is that what they offer to working people in terms of improving their material condition is a to attract foreign uh, investment by making Italy have lower labor costs, mainly actually in the form of tourism uh, and not in the manufacturing industry, which has been in recession for a year, but at the same time uh, to give tax cuts to workers so they to keep more of their take home pay. And that's basically it. In terms of things like uh, sort of high tech manufacturing, I don't see they have they're doing anything really. I mean, they they basically just propose to to lower taxes and get rid of environmental legislation. <laughs> that sounds like Alabama, really. <laughs> and what are they doing on on the social issues? The kinds of you know LGBTQ stuff and immigration that uh, is red meat to uh, the base. Is, are they acting on these things? So Italy doesn't have national level recognition of same sex parents. Uh, it also doesn't have same-sex marriage, 
which is actually very unusual among Western European countries. The current government uh, issued a decree which also stopped local mayors, local city halls from registering uh, birth certificates for same-sex couples, uh, which you know, some, notably Milan, uh, had been doing. So that, of course, has effects in terms of you know, children's ability to use childcare, uh, to be um, registered for, for health services, inheritance, and, and all sorts of things. And this is allied to this big culture war around surrogacy. And in, in Italy, the phrase always used is wombs for hire. So it's like the idea, like you go abroad and you pay a, a woman to have a kid on your behalf and uh, bring it back to Italy. So we had one of the leaders of the party, Fabio uh, Rampelli, saying that if gay parents are saying that they have children, then that's because they're passing off foreign kids as their own. And the verb he used for passing off is like one associated with the drug trade. But in fact, by far the majority of people who do use paid for surrogacy abroad are straight couples. And secondly, the laws proposed by uh, Fratelli d'Italia would actually ban all surrogacy uh, of any kind, even voluntarily. Uh, and indeed, the decree they issued actually stops um, lesbian couples using IVF from registering their, their children. At the same time, we have this stuff like uh, that already exists in Poland and Hungary, which is to give massive tax breaks, like up to 100%, up to 80 grand a year for uh, couples who have multiple children. Uh, and this is also meant to uh, draw Italians abroad, uh, middle class uh, emigres, back to Italy uh, because they have tax cuts just for having children. And on the immigration issue? In Rome, the other day, they had a uh, conference on migration with 20 countries. And it's the kind of product of a series of uh, missions that Milani has made to Tunisia, uh, which of course is just across the Mediterranean, uh, to meet its uh, president, who is um, Said, who himself promotes uh, great replacement theory. And basically what she then did was when it went back to Tunisia with uh, Sula von der Leyen, who's the uh, European Commission president, and then again with the uh, Dutch Prime Minister, Mark uh, Rutte, as well. And what they've arranged is a new deal for Tunisia to police illegal immigration, to repress migrants trying to cross the Mediterranean uh, in exchange for financial help. This is often heralded in, a pre- in the press as, you know, isn't she being the European leader on migration rather than taking some nationalist turn. Uh, but really, this actually confirms what I'm saying, because it's her who is setting the tone for what Europe does on migration. At the same time, at this conference, she said, well, you know, initially, we do need migrant workers, we do need guest workers. And so you have all these liberals saying, oh, wow, she's admitted she was wrong, and that we do need uh, migrants. But what she said is what her party has been saying for 30 years, which is yes to guest workers, yes, we need cheap migrant labour, no to settled migrant communities, no to immigrants uh, living here. So what she's doing, uh, and it's common in many European countries, is to separate the issue of short-term work visas from issues of citizenship uh, and the rights of people to live stably in Italy. And, you know, her party uh, opposes uh, birthright citizenship. It opposes the children of non-European immigrants having the right to citizenship just because they're born uh, in Italy. And that, of course, is becoming a, a, an ever bigger problem in reality, as that's the case for more and more uh, children. Uh, the, the other thing uh, on migration I should mention is, is the assault on the uh, rescue missions operated by NGOs. Uh, so they're no longer allowed to do multiple rescues in one trip. Uh, and they're also being forced to come back to Italy to ports further north, further from the Mediterranean, uh, which is basically designed to hamper their work. And some uh, some ships have been impounded for uh, breaking these rules. So what we're saying really is a outsourcing of the repression to of migration to uh, Tunisia, also in fact to Libya. Um, of course, we might say the European Union has been doing this for years, which is true but it's also getting worse. There are also moves against press freedom, uh, libel suits. I mean, the simplest way of putting it is Roberto Saviano, who's probably one of the most famous Italian uh, personalities in the world, 
is having his show cancelled by the Rai, by the public broadcaster, uh, even though it's already been filmed, although it's already you know ready to go, and it's a show uh, about the uh, mafia. And the reason he's being cancelled is because he has offended uh, some of the members of the government. Uh, and currently he has, the broadcaster said it, he breached its code of ethics. Uh, but really, I think the problem is that he has uh, libel suits against him by uh, both Milani and Matteo Savini, the leader of the Lega. And we've also seen other journalists subjected to these uh, libel suits uh, in order to try and shut them up. Italian defamation law is extremely restrictive, firstly because it's a criminal charge, so you can actually go to jail for defamation in Italy, and even if you win the case, you don't get to recover your costs. And also, (laughs) one of the uh, incredible things really is that Italy has very weak defences of uh, opinion and very weak defence of the fact that what you said is true. So if you offend someone's honour and what you say is true but it's not deemed to be in the public interest, then you can still get a criminal conviction for defamation. Uh, we've also seen uh, even uh, the case of the newspaper Domani uh, having its uh, offices uh, raided because of an online article it, it published which offended Claudio Dorigon, one of the, the ministers of the government. And the police raided the office and made them print out a copy of the offending article so that they could seize it. So, yeah, I, th- I think... Uh, it's true, uh, more broadly, that what the government has done in terms of putting its own political allies into top jobs in the broadcaster and even to presenter roles, most Italian governments do that. But I also think in this case, it's more total in the clear out of who went before and in quite how party aligned some of the people are. The new director general of the public broadcaster, Giampaolo Rossi, He is the director of the political foundation of the party and organized its uh, sort of national political festival a couple of years ago. He's like a guy who gave an interview to the the magazine of Casa Pound, like a neo-fascist squat in Rome. So I think they they are both uh, trying to shut up their opponents and they're really pushing uh, their own people into uh, decision-making roles. Whenever I write anything critical of Milani, you know, they always kind of fall back on this uh, thing of, oh, like you're saying, she's creating a fascist regime. How absurd. Of course, it's not like the 1920s. It's, it's not similar. But nonetheless, I think you can say that the, the government has an authoritarian streak in its inability to accept criticism, in its conspiracy theory, uh, and in its plans to remodel institutions. And finally, um, the far right, the fascist right has historically uh, been very masculine, men who embody the spirit of the fatherland. And recently there's been a, a new crop of women leaders of the far right, Maloney prominent among them. Uh, how is her gender playing out uh, politically? One of the things Maloney loves to do whenever she faces criticism is to fall back on the argument that she's a mother. So when there was a um, shipwreck earlier this year off Coutro. Uh, in which many dozens of migrants died. She was criticised for not going to see the victims, for not paying attention to what was going on. And she came out with this thing like, well, I'm a mother, so how can you say I don't care about the victims? And then uh, when she was coming back from uh, Washington this weekend, where uh, some uh, mean op-eds had criticised her, uh, she issued a a photo of herself uh, on a plane with her daughter, even with the kind of uh, anti-LGBT parenting stuff. She often draws on this, well, I'm a mother myself. More broadly at the level of image, part of the strength of parties like Fratelli d'Italia and uh, the Rassemblement National, as it's now called in France, is that they have a strong kind of activist core that has racked up a lot of defeats over a very long time and has kept going. I think it's generally true of the parties that are doing well in Europe at the moment are not these kind of pop-up vehicles or media fluff, but you know they're, they're parties with a base of activists that have been going for decades that have a strong identity. But at the same time, they also need to transcend the identity of a militant subculture. The way that Milani is useful in that respect, and, and indeed also with Le Pen in France, is that they kind of combine the face of the ordinary mother, first name used only, her 
book is called I Am Georgia uh, in France, Le Pen as well. Sometimes they even just call the electoral list like Marine Blue to just have the first name. So I think the idea of the mother, the sole woman who is surrounded by men, it helps that operation. As in, on the one hand, there's the party and its tradition and its militant identity, uh, but then the role of the of the mother is somehow less hard-edged, less ideological, uh, makes her harder to attack in a mean way. It plays in that in that sense. Of course, another issue is that the the thing with motherhood uh, is not just a way that Melanie protects herself from criticism, but it is actually an ideological theme of the party that we've also seen British Tories starting to talk about as well, which is falling birth rates as the great problem of the West and therefore a need to strengthen the role of the mother, the social respect for mothers. To be fair, though, I think you know, this isn't just uh, something reactionary or extremist. I mean, I think it precisely its strength, actually, is that Maloney, you know, she's a very successful politician, as well as being a, a mother. So she says, just because I'm saying that we need to strengthen the role of mothers, and indeed to demonise alternative types of family, that doesn't mean I'm saying that women should just be stuck in the home. So I think there's a kind of girl boss thing as well as the, uh, the traditional mother. That was David Broder, the European editor of Jacobin and author of Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy, published by Pluto. He had a piece of Maloney's rehabilitation in the New York Times last week. I should say that another egregious example of excusing far-right politicians is that of Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, whose party, the BJP, is sometimes called the oldest fascist party in the world. That dispensation reflects business interests as well as geopolitical ones. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, a bit of Try Jesus from L. King's album Come Get Your Wife, released early this year. Till next week, bye. Breaking, it's finally got me thinking I should try.